the Lord Jesus Christ tells a story. The story is about a steward and his stewardship. It's an interesting story, one that kind of takes a turn that we don't expect. But at the end of the story, Jesus makes a powerful and important statement. It's this statement that I want to call our attention to this morning. It's found in verse 10. It says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Being faithful in the little things prepares us to be faithful in the big things. John Blanchard stood up from the bench. He straightened his uniform and began to survey the crowd that was making its way through Grand Central Station. He was looking for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't. The girl with the rose. His interest began 13 months before in a used bookstore in Florida. Taking a book off of the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the content of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margins. The soft handwriting revealed a thoughtful soul, an insightful mind. In the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, he located her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter and introduced himself, inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for military service in Europe during World War II. Over the next one year and one month, the two grew to know each other through the mail. Every letter was a fertile seed falling on an open heart. A romance was budding. I requested a photograph, but she refused. She said if I really cared about her, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally arrived for me to return from Europe, we had arranged our first meeting. 7 p.m., Grand Central Station, New York City. So, there I was. She said, you'll recognize me by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. So at 7 o'clock, I was looking for the girl whose heart I loved, but whose face I'd never seen. Suddenly, a young lady was walking toward me. She had a figure that was long and slim. Her blonde hair curled around her delicate ears. Her eyes were as blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I took a step toward her, failing to notice that she was not wearing a rose. I stepped closer to her, and a 
slight curved smile came to her lips. Going my way, soldier. Almost uncontrollably, I took another step. And then I saw Hollis Maynard. She was standing directly behind the girl. A woman well past 40. Her gray hair tucked underneath an old worn hat. She was more than plump, and her thick ankled feet were thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was quickly walking away. I felt like I was torn in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing to know this woman who had companioned my soul and uplifted my spirit those last 13 months of the war. And there she was. Her pale, plump face was gentle and kind. Her gray eyes had sort of a twinkle. I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped the old, worn copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something special, a friendship that I had been and must forever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted. As I spoke, I felt choked by the bitter disappointment. I am Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Hollis Mayno. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the woman who just walked by in the green suit she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. She said, if you were to ask me to dinner, I should tell you she's waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of a test. Will you and I pass the test of being faithful in the least. God checks all the boxes of faithfulness. You know, if someone said that they loved us, but their love was inconsistent, we would call them unfaithful. If someone said that they were all-powerful, but at times they were inept, we would say, well, they're not really faithful. If someone said, I am merciful, but at times they were unforgiving, we would find them unfaithful. If someone claimed to be righteous or trustworthy or fair and just, but at times they were inconsistent in their fairness or their justness or their righteousness, we would say they're not faithful. 
But you see, God checks all of those boxes. All of God's attributes are highlighted by the fact that he is faithful. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. God is a faithful God, and the true test of your Christianity and the true test of my Christianity is whether or not we are faithful. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. God is looking in us for faithfulness. Anybody can love for a season. Anybody can live godly while someone else is watching. Anybody can be trustworthy with their friends. But will we pass God's test of faithfulness in the least? The Marines have a saying that identifies them for life. Semper Fi. Always faithful. Often when we take a test, there are some sections to the test. Perhaps some true and false. Perhaps a section on matching, maybe a section of essays or multiple choice. I believe in this one power-packed verse in Luke 16, we see three sections to this test of faithfulness. First, I see the partiality of faithfulness. Now, this may be the hardest section of the test. This may be where we bomb the test. This may be our demise in passing the course. The partiality of faithfulness. You see, often if we're not careful, we decide that some things are less important than other things. We decide that, well, that really isn't that big of a deal. But notice what he said there. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Zechariah said, Who hath despised the day of small things? Do we despise the small tasks that God brings our way to be faithful in? Do we despise those things that seem unimportant or not really essential to our life? And cast those aside and say, well, that's not a big deal. That's not an important area. I don't really need to be faithful there. It's easy to do. It's easy to fail the test right here. Adam and Eve thought it was a small thing to eat some fruit from a tree that God had said, do not eat. Esau thought it was a small thing to sell his birthright. Lot thought it was a small thing to pitch his tent towards Sodom. Achan didn't think it was much of a big deal to take one Babylonish garment, a, a wedge of gold, and a few shekels of silver. David didn't think it was a big deal to stay home from battle. 
Yuza didn't think it was a, a big offense to touch the Ark of the Covenant. The disciples didn't think it was a big deal to go through Samaria. Adonias and Sapphira thought it a little thing to hold back part of the price of the land. Demas didn't think it a big deal to love this present world. Felix didn't consider it a major decision when he said, when I have a more convenient season, I'll call for thee. The partiality of faithfulness. We don't think it's a big deal to treat our roommate right. We don't think it's a big deal to turn out the lights out right at 11 o'clock. It's not a big deal if I don't study for this quiz. It's just a quiz. It doesn't really matter if I give that person at the store a tract or not. It's not a big deal if I made my bed or got up on time or signed out of the dorm. It's not a big deal that I was dishonest on an assignment or plagiarized or, or cheated. It's not a big deal. Two years after I graduated college, I found myself in Minneapolis, Minnesota, starting a revival meeting at the Woodcrest Baptist Church. I had served two summers at Woodcrest during my college years. I loved the church. I loved the pastor. In those summers, I'd grown to know the people and know the ministry there and appreciated it so very much. To be asked to come back to this church and preach a week of revival was a great honor. Walked in Sunday morning, the auditorium was packed, about 600 people seated there in every seat and up and down the aisle, because the people had worked hard to bring guests and visitors to the revival. Over 20 first-time visitors that Sunday morning, and I was excited as a young evangelist to preach the message. But as I preached, I did not sense a great deal of power. I did not sense that I was really connecting with the audience. It almost seemed as though I was preaching in vain. I gave the invitation, but there was no response. No Christians walked the aisle. No unsaved came to be saved. It was a dry run. Sunday night, I returned for the evening service, and again, the auditorium was filled. The children were taken out to a separate service, and the auditorium was filled with adults, and again, a number of visitors there, a dozen or so, first-time visitors, and again, I preached, but it almost seemed like my words were falling off the end of the pulpit. It troubled me, but I thought, well, the devil is fighting God wants to do a great work here, but the devil is fighting us. Gave the invitation, nothing happened. Monday morning, went in and preached chapel in the Christian school. They had about 200 young people in the school, and I preached a message that I'd preached before in a Christian school chapel, and nothing happened. Monday night, again, a large crowd, not quite the crowd we'd had Sunday morning, but again, visiting people there. There was no power. There was no anointing. Nothing was happening in heart. 
began to be concerned. I thought, Lord, there's something wrong in the church. There's some sin in the camp. There's something that's blocking your work. There, there's something that's stifling your spirit. There, there's something going on here, and, and I, I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the discernment to, to, to know what it is. The pastor's not indicated anything is wrong in the church, and when I pray with people, it doesn't seem like there's anything uh, hindering the Spirit of God, and yet, Lord, there's something here. Lord, help me to figure it out. Help me to know what it is so I can address it. I can preach on it. We can, we can see God work. Tuesday morning chapel, nothing. After chapel on Tuesday, I walked across the street from the church to a place called Lock Park. It has a lot of trails that run for several miles through that park. As an intern, I had jogged in that park. I, I knew the park fairly well. I decided to go on one of these trails back into that park and just walk and pray and talk to God. And I was desperate now. And here I was in this very fine church, a church that had a reputation for soul winning and reaching people and taking a strong stand. And, 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 and it was an honor to be there, but something was wrong in the church. Something was wrong in the meeting. I walked, I prayed. I got to the very end of that park, and there was, a, there was an entrance, a back entrance to the park, and when I got there, there's a, there's a pavilion, like a picnic pavilion, and some grills and things like that there where people can meet. And I remember walking up to that pavilion, up to one of those picnic tables, and putting my, my foot up on, the, on that picnic table, and in desperation, I said, God... Why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you showing me this? Lord, I want revival. I, I want to see you blessed. I want people to be saved. People have been in the services and they've gone out lost. God, something's wrong. What is it? Lord, whatever it is, I, I want to know what it is. If it's me. When I said, is it, if it's me, it was like heaven opened. And God said, that's it. And I remember jumping back off that picnic table, and I said, God, good night. If it's me, if there's something in my life, Lord, show me what it is. And immediately God took me back to a little thing. He took me back to my junior year in college. I was taking a heavy load of classes, 21 credits. I was taking Greek too. I was working about 30 hours a week. I was playing football. I was busy. I was involved in some of the things at the school. I was president of the junior class. I was president of the K. Rook Society, like a collegian. I was president of the Inner Society, which planned all student activities. And I was president of the student body. I would have been president of the whole college, but there was one guy in the way. <laughs> I was busy. And I came to midterm exams. I had seven classes, 
I got through my first six exams in good shape. But my last exam was at 7.30 in the morning in Greek 2. My Greek 1 teacher had dared me to try to get an A, and I took the dare, studied my tail off, and managed to get an A. So the pressure was on to do well in Greek 2. But I had gotten behind. In Greek 2, you do a lot of translating. We were translating through the book of 1 John. And in class, we'd go over these translations to see that we were doing them correctly. And I'd gotten behind in my translation work. The teacher told us that the midterm exam would be over a section of what we had already translated. Well, that was great news for everybody else, but for me it wasn't because I hadn't kept up in my translation. So the night before the exam, I went to one of my football buddies. His name was Doug, and he was a tremendous student. I said, Doug, are you keeping up in Greek? He said, oh, yeah. I said, Do you, are, are you caught up on the translations? He said, of course I am. I said, Doug, can I borrow your notes? Can I borrow your translations to study for the exam? I'm behind, and, and, and I want to do well, and, and can, I, can I study your notes? He said, sure. I'm done. I'm ready. I took those notes, those translations from Doug. I went back to my room. I got out my Greek New Testament, and I opened it to 1 John. And in between the lines of Greek, in light pencil, I wrote the translation from Doug's notes. Didn't take long. Went into class the next morning at 7.30. Dr. Coghill said, all right, guys, take out a piece of paper. Open your Greek New Testament to 1 John. Translate chapter 2. I took out a piece of paper, took out my Greek New Testament, and I translated 1 John 2, not from the Greek, from the notes penciled between the lines. When everyone finished, we corrected it on the spot. Got a 98. Dumb notes. Bad notes. But I got an A. Got an A in the course. Graduated. In evangelism. And under that pavilion, God said, you might have thought it was a little thing. Now it's a big thing. Deal with it. I said, but God... That's like, that's like three years ago. I mean, I, I've already graduated. I, mean, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't do anything about that now. God started closing the heavens. I said, wait. I said, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I just, I can't. I mean, what if, they, what if they take my diploma away? What if I have to take Greek over again? I said, God, I, I, and God said, well, you ask. I left that park and I ran 
to a gas station, a Standard Oil gas station on the corner of 68th and University Avenue. There was a phone booth on the corner of that gas station lot. I went into that phone booth, put some money into the phone, and I dialed area code 414-261-9300. I heard the phone ring. A friendly voice answered, Good morning, Maranatha Baptist Bible College. How may I help you? I said, uh, I'd like to speak to Dr. Cogdill, please. Just a moment. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, He's in chapel right now. May I take a message? I said, oh, no, that's okay. Thank you. I hung up. I said, God, he's in chapel. God said, I know where he is. And I also know you know when chapel is over. Call again. I waited, put in some more money. 414-261-9300. Good morning. Maranatha Baptist Bible College. How may I help you? Uh, Dr. Coghill, please. Just a moment. I'm sorry, sir. He's at a financial meeting right now. May I take a message? No, that's okay. Thank you. Hung up. Lord, he's in a financial meeting. We don't need to bother him now. The Lord said, I know where he is. Keep calling. I went back to where I was staying, and that afternoon I tried every hour. And each time he was unavailable. I went to the service that night, I preached, nothing happened, good crowd, visitors, nothing. There was a couple in the church named Al and Betty Ricks. I'd met them as an intern, had eaten a meal or two at their home. They invited me over for a snack after the service. I said, okay, and Went to their house, and we enjoyed a little fellowship, snack. As we sat there, I said, Al, you have an office in the basement, don't you? They said, I do. They had a little business they ran out of their home, and I had been down there once and had seen their business. It was a little kind of a used bookstore business. He said, yeah, there's an office down there. I said, do you have a phone down there? They said, sure. I said, "May may I use it? He said, help yourself. I went down those stairs and into that office, closed the door, and I, by this time, had secured Dr. Cogill's home number. I called that number, and he answered. I said, Dr. Cogill, uh, this is John Getsch. Hey, Brother Getsch, how you doing? I said, huh? Okay. Where are you at? I said, uh, Minneapolis, Woodcrest Baptist Church. Oh, Pastor Foreman, tell him hello for me. How are the meetings going? Not real good, Dr. Cogill. That's why I called. Oh, what can I do? 
Sadash Kogil, I, uh, I took second year Greek from you. Yes, got an A as I recall. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why I called. <laughs> I said the midterm. I cheated. It was a long silence. I broke the silence. I said, Dr. Cogill, I, I don't know what this means. I, but I don't care. You tell me whatever I need to do. If I need to hand in my diploma, you just tell me. I'll have it there tomorrow. You want me to retake Greek? I'll retake Greek. It, it doesn't matter. Dr. Cogill, people have been in my service. They're lost. And they're still lost because of me. I'm in a great church, but we're not seeing anything happen because of me. He said, I'll be in touch. I hung up that phone not knowing what the consequences would be. But I floated up those stairs. There was a burden gone that I didn't even know I was carrying for three years. Slept like a rock that night. Went into chapel the next morning and preached a simple message out of Genesis 13 on Cain and Abel. I'd preached it several times before to young people in chapel. Preached about 20 minutes. Gave the invitation. Young people began to come. And they kept coming. They came all the way through lunch. The invitation lasted 90 minutes. As young people got saved, got right with one another, began calling their parents. Now parents were showing up at the church to see what was going on, and they were walking the aisle to get right. That made me mad. They hadn't even heard me preach. <laughs> I remember going back to my room, and I said, Lord, what am I going to preach tonight? That was, a, that was a pretty good service. I, I, I need a good message for tonight. And he wouldn't tell me. He honestly wouldn't tell me. All afternoon, I, I, I asked, what, what do you want me to preach? He wouldn't tell me. I went to church that night without a message. And, and I didn't have any memorized at that point either. And I remember sitting on the platform. They're going through the preliminaries. And finally, the lady's singing the song before the message. They've already introduced me. And I'm sitting there, and I still don't have a message. And I started praying. I said, Lord, that lady is on the last verse of this song. And when she's done, they expect me to stand up and go up there and start talking. It would really help if I knew what you wanted me to say. And at that point, the Lord said, just preach anything, but make it short. I got work to do here. I went up and I stumbled through a message I'd preached once or twice before on the demon who answered the Lord, let us alone. What have we to do with thee? I entitled it, leave me alone. I love that message because when my wife would ask me, what are you preaching tonight? I'd say, leave me alone. <laughs> I preached for about 15 minutes, gave the invitation, and for an hour and a half, people came down those aisles to be saved. 
Be careful about the partiality of faithfulness, young people. You may think something is very small right now, very insignificant, really not important at all in the big picture, but it is. But notice the second section of the text. Not only the partiality of faithfulness, but notice the pattern of faithfulness. In verse 10, it says, faithful in least leads to faithful in much. You see, there's a pattern that's developing in our life. And when we are faithful in little, we become faithful in much. But when we are unfaithful in little, we become unfaithful in much. The pattern we all have as a part of our anatomy, something that we refer to as muscle memory. If you have a car and that car operates with a key, and you've had that car for a year or two, you can get in that car right now, take out the key, and you don't have to look to see where you're going to put the key. No, you have muscle memory. You take the key, and you stick it right in. It's called muscle memory. If we went back to your home, wherever you're from, and walked in your bedroom, you wouldn't have to search for the light switch. Now, let's see, where's the light switch? Now, you've only been gone a week. You walk in there, you flip it on, don't you? You know right where it is. Now, in the dorm right now, some of you still haven't found it. <laughs> but by the end of the semester, you'll just do the same thing. Why? Because it's muscle memory. Uh, Sometimes there's a keypad to get to the third floor of the administration building. There, there's a keypad. You've got to know the code to get on the third floor. I couldn't tell you if you put a gun to my head what those numbers are. But I can get to the third floor. It's muscle memory. I just go up to the keypad and I hit, the, I, I hit it like I always do. I don't know the numbers. I just know where the buttons are. <laughs> I forgot the numbers when they first gave out the code. <laughs> but I can get in because of muscle memory. I've done it hundreds of times. Then they change the number and I have to start all over again. Habits are difficult to break. Not only are bad habits hard to break, but good habits are hard to break. And what God is saying here is, look, you have a pattern that's developing right now of faithfulness. Some of you are saying, when I get married, then I'm going to have pure thoughts. When I get in ministry, I'm going to be a soul winner. When I get into a leadership position, then I'm going to start being an example. Can I tell you something? It ain't going to happen. Because you already failed the test. You see, if you're not guarding your thoughts now, if you're not keeping your mind and your body and your heart pure before God, you're not going to be a faithful spouse. If you're not disciplining your life now to be a witness, to be a testimony, to hand out a tract, you're not going to do it just because somebody signs you up to work at their church. If you're not leading by example now in the dorm room or in your collegian or, or on this campus, listen, you're not going to be an example to those teenagers in that youth group. You see, God says be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, always abounding spiritual muscle memory 
during Daniel's day, they passed a phony law. They said it was illegal to pray, to ask a petition of God or man for 30 days. If you asked a petition of God or man for thir- in that 30-day window, you would be placed in a den of lions. So if I said, Gabriel, I'm thirsty. Could you, get, could you get me a bottle of water over there? If I had done that during that time, I'd go to the lion's den. You could not ask a petition of God or man for 30 days. Now, they knew they had Daniel. They couldn't find any occasion or fault in Daniel. So they made this phony law because they knew they could trap him because they knew he prayed. And the Bible says in Daniel 6 and verse 10, And Daniel, knowing the writing was signed, went into his house, his windows in his chamber being opened toward Jerusalem. He kneeled down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God three times a day. Watch this. As he did aforetime. Spiritual muscle memory. It was time to pray. Didn't matter what the law was. Didn't matter what else was going on in his life. Didn't matter the culture, the conditions, the circumstances, the uncertainty, the chaos. Didn't matter. It was time to pray. And he had spiritual muscle memory. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. Jesus on the Sabbath day went up into the synagogue and opened the scriptures to read as his custom was. Spiritual muscle memory. You plan to love your spouse. Do you love your parents? When's the last time you told them? You plan to preach the word. Are you reading your Bible every day? Did you read it today? You plan to be a great teacher, but you don't turn in an assignment on time. You plan to be disciplined in your work, but you're more than willing to skip a class or skip work or cut out a chapel. Partiality in our faithfulness. The pattern of faithfulness. But then notice finally the potential of faithfulness. In verse 10, he says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. The potential of doing these little things right now, these least things right now, these seemingly unimportant things right now is an opportunity for God to allow you to become faithful in much. David, by protecting those sheep from a lion and a bear, opened the opportunity for David to protect the nation of Israel from a giant. When God meets us at that judgment seat of Christ, I believe He desires to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We desire to hear that. But as he makes that remark, he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Do you see the potential of faithfulness there? 
When you're faithful in the least, then you can be counted on to be faithful in much. When you're faithful in the little things, the few things, the things that nobody even notices, then God gives you the opportunity to be faithful over much. You know Dr. Lester as Dr. Lester. You know Dr. Lester as an esteemed Bible professor, man that has studied the Word of God and has a unique gift in teaching it. Our academic dean oversees our academic programs both on campus and online. Really the genesis of much of what we do in the academic field but when he came to this campus 25 years ago, he taught sixth grade. You see Brother Furso leading the outreach program of Lancaster Baptist Church. You see a, a soul winner. You see somebody that's able to bring people to church week after week, get them into the baptistry, get them through discipleship and into, the, into this church. You see Brother Furso teaching personal evangelism and he just seems to have a way of presenting things to people where they want to come to Christ. But Brother Furso came here and was teaching with videos elementary school in a broken down building at 304 West Lancaster. But you see, these men who today we see being faithful over much, being faithful over many things, they started by being faithful over a few things. They started by being faithful over the little. And when we're faithful in that which is little, it has the potential to allow us to be faithful in that which is much. I don't know what seems like a little thing to you. I can think of some things that seem sort of little to me. Sometimes it might be a rule or a policy. Sometimes it might be a, a step of obedience in my Christian life. Sometimes it might be an opportunity to witness. Sometimes it might be just taking time to talk to somebody, and I might think, well, it's not really that important. And we fail the test of the least. So when you're fighting bitter disappointment because the beautiful lady is walking away, be faithful in your commitment to the plump, gray-haired lady in the coat. Because it might just be a test.